right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Matthew. Now, the last time we were here, we were in chapter 10. And basically what we were dealing with is the conduct and the overall dealing with those in the new kingdom. Or as we would basically say it today, the conduct and how to deal with other members in the church. Because remember, ever since Matthew chapter 12, the rejection of Jesus, they Jesus rescinded the offer of the kingdom to them. He would no longer be their king. Matthew chapter 13, he began to talk about a new kingdom. And in the process of talking about the new kingdom, he was continuously training his disciples about the new kingdom, that is the church. And so when we basically got into chapter 18, one, it started out with the principle of how one should view oneself. That is, one of the disciples came to Jesus. They were basically asking him who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we're not going to rehash everything that we've said about the kingdom, but once again, we remember that the disciples themselves were still confused thinking there would be a an established Jewish kingdom, not really understanding the kingdom that Jesus was speaking about. That is the church and the later role that they should play in the in the foundation of the church and the establishment of the church, not understanding that Jesus was actually preparing them for the role that they would play as apostles in the church. Nevertheless, in the continuation of all of these things, that is their training, chapter 18 in particular, they came to Jesus, want to know who would be the greatest. And Jesus laid a foundational principle that all of, for the most part, chapter 18 can be built upon. And that is number one, how to see yourself through the visor of humility and how to understand others in the church, especially others that we may seem may seem to be not as well-founded or those who don't have the social standing and things of that nature, the least in the kingdom or the least in the church. And that is to honor them and to see them with great respect and with great value. So he set that principle forth down, how to see yourself with humility and how to have a great value to be placed upon the other members of the church, those who would seem to be less significant. And dealing with that particular principle and even the one of value, he gave the next particular lesson in chapter 18, and that is the leaving of the 99 to find the one. How, how we, especially those in the leadership, should value even the most, the least insignificant one in the body of Christ. Our responsibility to them, if they become doctrinally or, or persuaded, or if they begin to wander, value them enough to come search for them. And our response when we find them, when we get them on the right track, is simply to rejoice. Then he continued on in his teaching in dealing with the issue of uh, discipline. That is the church, the new body has the power to govern and discipline its believers. Now I'm not going to go through all the details on that, but he just simply talked about the brother who has sinned, that the brother should be uh, trying to be brought back in a private sense, one-to-one, -one, if he doesn't listen, two or three. If he doesn't listen, bring before the church. If he doesn't listen to the church, 
The church has the authority to discipline that member to the point of excommunication. And that's why he said this will be acknowledged in heaven. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I'm in the midst. That is two or three acting as judges. And again, whatsoever you bound shall be bound and whatsoever you lose shall have been loose. That is God recognizes the authority of the church to discipline its members. But nevertheless, as he said early in chapter 18, offenses or stumbling blocks are inevitable because of our human nature. And so he laid an even greater precipice for how we should deal with one another as Matthew is accounting these things. And as Peter come to him, asking him about the number of times that a brother should be forgiven. And Jesus basically said, we should forgive one another an infinite number of times. Why? Because we always sin. It is the very nature of who and what we are. And so basically what Jesus was dealing with, or as we see it in Matthew's writing, what he was dealing with in chapter 18 is the members of this new spiritual body. Okay, so now we get into chapter 19. Jesus is not so much as dealing with the training of the disciples in a direct sense as Matthew is placing it here. But nevertheless, the disciples are being trained by Jesus, but we are getting into their preparation specifically for Jesus to go into Jerusalem because this will be Jesus's last time in Jerusalem. And we know when he goes to Jerusalem, he will be condemned, crucified, and after that, resurrected from the dead. So now we begin this sort of a new section as he prepares the disciples for his soon to be death and resurrection. And we see events that are taking place with the Lord as we lead to these events. Okay, so now let's just get started in chapter 19. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. 
For there are eunuchs who were born that way and from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Okay. So now in this particular section, the first thing that we see is Jesus departing from Galilee. Remember, it was Galilee that Jesus basically had the center for his ministry. So now Jesus is coming to coming toward the end of his ministry and he is moving towards Jerusalem. We know where Jesus would be condemned to death. And so he goes into the region of Judea and as usual, large crowds followed Jesus. And we also see Jesus exercising his ministry of healing. No doubt Jesus acting in a sense of compassion toward the crowd and he is healing them. However, let us not confuse. Jesus is not performing signs for them. He is not healing them to demonstrate that he is their Messiah in order that the people may receive him as Messiah. Therefore, make, that he might be king of Israel. This time has passed. Jesus is simply acting in acts of compassion because he is the Lord who has compassion on his people. And these are things that was also written, Isaiah 61, that the Messiah would do, that he would be compassionate towards the people and even heal their sicknesses. But anyway, so as he is in this particular region, some of the Pharisees come to Jesus and notice what it says that they were testing him, which simply means that what the Pharisees were simply doing is what they have been doing since Matthew chapter 12 and even before. They are trying to capture Jesus, entangle him in his words so that they can find some reason or another to condemn him. But nevertheless, they come to Jesus, testing Jesus, asking him about marriage. And they basically question Jesus whether or not a man had the right to divorce his wife for any reason at all. And now what we have to understand a couple of things is number one. According to the Mosaic law, only a man can divorce his wife. The wife cannot divorce her husband. And number two, there was an issue that was going on in that day. There were two rabbinic schools, rabbinic teachers. One was by the name of Shammai and the other was, was by the name of Hillel. And these two rabbinic schools had two very different reasons on what on whether or not, or should I even say, the reasons on what would be permissible that would allow a man to divorce his wife. Now, the school of Shammai was a very conservative school, and they said that a man can only divorce his wife for very serious reasons, notably for sexual immorality. However, on the other hand, the school of Hillel was a very liberal school. And they said that that is Hillel, that a man can divorce his wife for any reason at all. And some went even as far as to say that you can divorce your wife even if she burned your dinner or even if you found another woman who was more fairer than she was, more good looking than she was. So the school of Shammai, conservative, divorce only for 
basically sexual immorality. Hillel, basically for whatever reason that the man was displeased with his wife. And this is the questions that the Pharisees asked Jesus. And so Jesus answered their question, not taking the side of either Shammai or Hillel, but Jesus answered them from the scriptures. And so notice in his answers, he said, have you not read? Which means that the key to whether or not a man, or should we even say the understanding of marriage leading to divorce, as we are talking about in the text of Jesus, is found in the scripture. So therefore, Jesus turns their thoughts to the scriptures when he asks them, have you not read? Number one, have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, I'm not going to bring in a lot of alternative uh, points concerning these things, but Jesus is laying here the foundation of human sexual relationship. I'm not going to get into all of the issues that we are dealing with today, like homosexuality and transgender. But all I will say here at this point is Jesus lays the foundation for human sexuality, that sexuality, which goes to the building up of a relationship that is marriage. And he points to God himself. God in his sovereign choice made male for female. He did not make male for male. He did not make female for me female. He made a man and a woman. And this becomes the foundation for sexual relationship slash a marriage. And that's all I'll say about that. So Jesus appeals unto what God has done. He made them male and female, those who are uh, who can legitimately engage in marriage. And notice what he says in the making of them. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be cl and cling unto his wife. He sets the priority and the importance for marriage. Marriage is so important in that it overrules all prior relationships. And the most important relationship that a man would have prior than marriage before he marries is his relationship with his father and mother. And so by stating this, as Jesus quotes Genesis, that a man leaves father and mother, that means the order of relationship is reprioritized that the wife, or should we even say the husband wife relationship now takes priority over all relationships, even the relationship of a man with his parents. So the first thing that Jesus lets us see is the priority of the marriage relationship, or simply said how important the marriage relationship is. Then he continues on and talks about this joining. The two shall be joined as one flesh. There are no longer two. So therefore, he shows not only is the relationship prioritized in importance, but the relationship of husband and wife is reorganized. They are no longer two independent creatures. They are no longer seen as two independent creatures, but spiritually they are seen as one. And then he begins to say, 
since it is God who has determined the priority of this relationship, the reorganization of this relationship, what God has joined together in one flesh, no man should separate. Since marriage is the creation of God, no human being, including those who are married, husband or the wife, has the right to dissolve the marriage. Why? Because the intent of marriage, first of all, the creation of marriage is by God himself. The organization of marriage, the oneness of the marriage relationship is by God himself. The actual officiating of the act of marriage is by God himself. Therefore, since all of these things are of divine origin, no human being can dissolve the marriage. Marriage, Jesus is teaching here, is intended to be for the life of both the husband and wife. We just kind of simply said marriage is forever. All right. So and in hearing that, the Pharisees did not like Jesus answer. So they then challenged Jesus and said, well, why did Moses tell us to write her to give her a certificate of divorce? And then we can send her away. So they were simply saying, Moses said we could divorce our wife. And he told us we can divorce them by giving her a certificate. And then we could lawfully send her away. Jesus responded and said, Moses did do this thing, but he did not do this because it was a commandment from God. Moses permitted you. He allowed you to do this because of the hardness of your heart. Now, what Jesus was simply saying was this. Moses knew that even though they were commanded by God and it was the intent of God for marriage to be forever, they would still divorce their wives no matter what. And what we need to understand is this, according to the law, remember now, if a woman is put away from her husband, the only reason the law would allow the woman to be basically put away from her husband is because of adultery. So if you saw a woman put away from her husband, the natural thinking would be that the woman had committed adultery. And what was the punishment from the law for a woman who had committed adultery? The woman was to be put to death. So what did Moses do? Knowing that the men would divorce their wives, he wanted to give the wives, the women, protection, protection against the death penalty. Why? So that the men even though the woman may not, did not, did not commit adultery against them, and yet the men wanted to put the woman away, permit, allow the man, write her a certificate of divorce, put it in the woman's hand, and then send her away. So that whoever saw this woman put away from her husband, she could produce a document to simply say, I did not commit adultery. My husband, for whatever the reason might be, simply sent me away. And this certificate of divorcement would protect the woman's life. This is what Moses did. Moses was not sanctioning their divorce. Moses was protecting the life of a woman who did not commit adultery, but whose husband wanted to put her away anyway. And this is what Moses did. This is what Jesus said. 
Moses didn't permit you to commit adultery. Moses knew your heart would be so hardened you would do it anyway. He only protected the life of the woman. But nevertheless, Jesus simply says, but from the beginning, that is from the mind of God, he who created, instituted and organized marriage. This was never the case. God never intended this to be so. So Jesus simply says, and I say unto you, that is the messianic authority speaking as the one who has the authority to speak and to give commandments. It is the Messiah, the son of God. He has such authority. So he simply says, uh, uh, according to the word, if Anybody does divorce his wife with the exception of sexual immorality. And he uses the word pornea, which is a general and a broad term for sexual immorality. And we learn about sexual sins like Leviticus chapter 18, Leviticus chapter 20. We learn all about all of the different types of sexual sins. And that's why Jesus used this broad term pornea that if a woman is guilty of pornea, one of the partners even, then a person has a right for divorce. But outside of sexual sins, there is no divorce. And Jesus is basically stating here the general principle case, okay? In saying these things, that is how that marriage becomes a permanent thing. Even the disciples were taken aback saying to Jesus that if you can only get rid of a woman because of that, then it's better not to marry. And so the disciples, you can even see that they themselves were persuaded or having been influenced by society. That is the Hillel point of view that you can divorce your wife for a number of reasons. And so the disciples, if you'll let me say it this way, seeing that there was no easy way out of a marriage, simply said to Jesus, well, then it's better not even to marry. Jesus dealing with that particular verbiage, better not to marry, Jesus began to teach them on that. It says, every man cannot accept this statement. That is, every man cannot accept the statement that he should not marry. And Jesus began to simply talk about, as Paul would talk about, the gift of marriage. That's in 1 Corinthians. The gift of marriage, that is, some have been given the gift of not being able. Okay. Some have been, have the ability of being able to deal or to contain their sexual urges. And that's basically what Jesus is talking about. So notice what he says. There are eunuchs, that is men who will never marry men who are able to contain their sexual urges. That's the whole idea. There are men who are eunuchs born that way from their mother's womb. Remember the whole disciple, the point of the disciple was saying it's better not to marry. Jesus is saying, but yeah, but this doesn't fit all men. What men does it fit? Who is better for them not to marry? Those number one, born from their mother's womb, who don't have this overwhelming sexual desire. So therefore not having this strong sexual desire, they need not marry. Then he said, then there were men who were made eunuchs 
by men. And that basically deals with the issue of castration. That's the usual concept. And usually you'll find that, say for instance this, if you got a king and then the king has an, uh, 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 a bunch of women wives and concubines, right? And he would have a, a man, an official, to guard over them, this particular eunuch. The king would guarantee that this official would not engage in sexual contact with his harem by having the man castrated. This is a one whom Jesus is talking about, one who is made a eunuch by men. That's an example of that. And then Jesus said, then there are those who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. That is, there are also there are also a particular group of men who have made a determination for themselves. We see Paul himself talking about this again in first Corinthians. They decided that marriage. I don't want to use the term troublesome, but Paul did even say that in marriage there will be trouble in the flesh. Why? For the man must to some degree care for the world because of his concern for his wife and the woman to some degree should care for the world because of her concern for, for her husband. But to the one who is unmarried can give all their time and their attention to God and to the kingdom. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this instance. Those who have power over their own bodies, who can determine that I am not going to engage in sex. And so therefore I don't need to marry. And so therefore I can give all of my time and concentration to the kingdom of God. And this is the third group that Jesus is talking about. And then he finally says, if you can accept it, then accept it. So the finality of what Jesus was simply saying is men as a whole will continue in the gift of marriage. And those who have the gift of marriage should understand that marriage is a permanent relationship. You should not divorce your wives, except it be for fornication. And then he said to the disciples when they turned again, they didn't turn against Jesus words, but they had a sour taste in their mouth about the permanency. He simply says, but according to what you are saying about a man not marrying, he simply says, all men don't have this power to refrain from sexual activity. Some are born that way. Some are made that way by other men and some are determined to be that way for the kingdom of heaven so that they can live a life without distraction for God. And so he ends that particular section with the testing concerning marriage as Jesus moves toward Jerusalem. But at the same time, I like when he says he who can accept it, accept it. Understanding the difficulty of the disciples to accept what Jesus has to say, or even for all of us to hear what Jesus has to say, it provides almost like a bridge into the next section. Okay, and I'll talk about that once I get into that section. But the whole idea is the mindset and the heart that we need to have when it comes to accepting what the Lord has to say. When the Lord said rules for our lives, what should be our mindset? 
our personal disposition, which takes us straight into the next section. Watch it. Verse 13. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Now in that beautiful, notice the crossover that we do have. Notice that thing concerning marriage and we even struggle with it today. It is a very difficult thing. Marriage is hard. And sometimes we see the easy way out or we'll say the best way out is simply to divorce. And that's what we see with the apostles here saying what? It's better not to even marry. And then Jesus ended in saying what? He says, he, he who can accept it, let him accept it. Because what Jesus said, I am saying to you, this is how it is. And the discussion is closed. How should we receive what Jesus has to say about marriage, about everything else? Notice all of a sudden, Matthew brings in the account of little children. Who are little children? Those who are simple of mind, but even more so those who are humble of heart, those who listen, those to whom you can give instruction to and simply they obey. What happened? The women were bringing their children to Jesus so that Jesus could lay his hands on the children, bless the children and pray for the children. The disciples kind of seemed as if Jesus had no time for this or Jesus was more important. He didn't have time to be fooling around with no children. And so the disciples were rebuking the women, sending them away. Jesus turned to rebuke the disciples. But look at the principle upon what Jesus rebuked them as. Once again, this is the second time that Matthew talks about children, the kind of mindset that you need to have, a mindset of humility and how you need to see yourself. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is made of such ones as these. Now, Jesus is not so much talking about the kingdom of heaven, that is the kingdom will be simply constituted with a bunch of small children. That's not what he's talking about. He's dealing with the principal mind of God's people. What should be the principal mind of God's people? How should we see ourselves, how should we acknowledge ourselves as humble little children? And that is, now let's relate to what our master just said, that the disciples themselves were struggling with the issue of marriage. Now let us be children. What did daddy say? Daddy said that this is how marriage should be done. And this is how marriage should be understood as being a permanent relationship. And how am I, the little child going to receive what daddy just said. I'm going to simply say, of course, I'm a little child. Whatever he says, he's our dad. He is our master. So notice what Matthew is doing here in the bridge is he takes away that obstinate attitude that we often present God when he gives us difficult things to obey, or even should I say it this way, things we don't want to obey. Nevertheless, 
as children, that's where we are right here, as children of the kingdom, let us have an humble mind, not to think so much of ourselves and think to have our way, but minds as small children to be obedient to whatever our master has to say, even when they are difficult things. And that's how Matthew brings in the issue of children. Okay, now let's keep, let's continue as we move towards the end of this again, as Jesus is still teaching, teaching his disciples. We are still in the training thing. We're still in the training things about how we are to view him and following after him. Or should we even say, as he will right here, give us a lesson in discipleship. Okay, but let us go on. Verse number 16, and someone came to him and said, teacher, what good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, who then can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Okay, now you should have called already because as Jesus was turning to the disciples, as Matthew is laying this account before us, he is trying to give an object lesson. He is teaching something to the disciples. So let's just simply go into it. So remember, now he has departed from the region of Judea. He's still moving towards Judea. And I, don't you like it? He's still moving towards Jerusalem, teaching his disciple. As his time for his departure is drawing near, what happens? A young man in some places, some people, places in the scripture, uh, in the headings in the Bible, headings that are not in the scripture, they may say the rich young ruler. That's exactly what he was. He comes to Jesus and he is very energetic. He addresses Jesus in an honorable way. Teacher. And he says, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? The young man is looking. He wants to get into the kingdom. Okay, and, and that is in the Jewish mindset, the kingdom that he believes that it may is to come, 
Perhaps he seems to be viewing Jesus as the Messiah. It seems that way. But his desire is to one day be in the kingdom, that Jewish kingdom that we talked about. OK, not the church, not the church, Matthew 13, but the Jewish kingdom, this Jewish man. And so he feels that there is something lacking in his life that may that's giving him insecurity in whether or not he will actually come into or be in the kingdom, qualify for the kingdom. So he asked Jesus, a prominent rabbi of that time, what good thing can he do that to guarantee that he will be in the kingdom? So Jesus began to question him on his address, on how he was addressing Jesus. Why are you asking me about the good? Now, I don't want to get you guys into a lot of Greek words, but he is using the word agothos. The word agothos simply means good, and that is intrinsically good. Or if you'll let me simply say it this way, good by nature. And that's why even in other accounts in the gospel, it says to Jesus that he called Jesus good master or good teacher. Why do you call me good? Why are you asking about the good, the agathos, the intrinsically good? And then Jesus said, there is only one good, but God. So what Jesus is saying, saying here is this, and this is why I brought to you guys that word agathos. Uh, uh, agathos, which means intrinsically good, good by nature. Only God, by his very nature, by the nature of who he is, intrinsically, only God is good. Only Christ is good, too. Only the Messiah is good this way. Why? Because he is God. That's why in the other account, Jesus was asking, uh, uh, why do you call me good? to even say, are you calling me God? But nevertheless, we're not going to get into that. But Jesus wants the young man to know only God by nature is intrinsically good. And it seems to suggest that the young man was somehow viewing himself this way, which this is not the case. This is not the case for the young man. This is not the case for any human being. We, by nature, are evil. We, by our own nature, are intrinsically evil. We are not good. Only God, by his nature, is good. So that's the point that I bring there. That's the point that Jesus was simply trying to make unto the young man. But since the young man did not respond to this, Jesus just continued on to answer his question. Fine. If you want to enter into life, same idea as enter into the kingdom, Jesus gave him the latter commandments that we find, as some people call it, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And those commandments had to do with how one acted towards other people. That is, notice what he says. Do not commit murder. Don't murder another person. Do not commit adultery. Have adultery with another person person. Do not steal from another person. Do not bear false witness against another person. Honor your father and your mother. Two persons. Commandments that had to deal with how we do with people. So Jesus gave him those commandments and simply said to keep. The young man enthusiastically responded to Jesus 
saying that he kept all of these commandments even since he was a child. And the word that he actually used here, not so much as keep, he said, I actually guarded, which simply means he intimately kept it. Whether or not he actually did or not, we don't know. The scriptures didn't get into it. And Jesus didn't really get into it. He didn't argue with him about it. But Jesus continued on. So the young man said, okay, fine. I did everything that you said as far as those commandments. What am I lacking still? He still felt there was still something that was lacking that could give him the surety that he was looking for to get into the kingdom. And so Jesus responded to him and dealt with the very root of his problem. And Jesus said it this way. He said it this way. If you want to be made complete, you want this guarantee that you're looking for. I tell you what you do. Sell everything that you own. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me. Now, it's multifaceted what Jesus told him to do. Basically, sell all that he had and give it to the poor. It's multifaceted in what Jesus was dealing with in that number one, he didn't truly love his neighbor as he loved himself. That's number two. And then number three, Jesus dealt with that thing in those 10 commandments that was not about what you did. He dealt with that final commandment that dealt with the secrets of the heart which was covetousness, covetousness. And so Jesus touched him at the very center of his problem, coveting, loving things, even more so than loving God. And he challenged him concerning the love of things, which even can deal with idolatry. But Jesus challenged him in the heart, in the secret heart of his sin because his sins were inside the love for things. He challenged him and simply said, can you love God enough more than love your things? Demonstrate your love for God by getting rid of all your things and putting God ahead of everything else. Let's be honest saints. That is a challenge. Suppose he came and said that to you, or he said that to me, what would have been our response? Would we have done the same thing like the rich young ruler? Would we have dropped our head and been very grieved and walked away? Or would we have continued in the same enthusiasm and excitement that the ruler had when he first came to Jesus, will we still have been just as excited to have the answer, to have the solution and simply says, if I do these things, it demonstrates my heart is right before God and I know I'll be in the kingdom because there's nothing you can do to be saved, to get into the kingdom. But by doing these things, it demonstrates that the heart is right with God and one is already qualified for the kingdom. Bottom line, and this is what I'm asking you, this is what I'm asking myself. 
would we still have that same level of excitement and joy if Jesus told us the same exact thing? Go and sell everything that you have, especially if we are people who have a measure of some resources. What would you and I have done? That's a question for us to answer. But enough of that. So that's what this young ruler did. He couldn't stand to depart from those things, the things that he owned. And so his demeanor changed. He turned around and walked off. As he walked off, Jesus used this as an object lesson to his disciples to teach his disciples about the importance of things. And that's the primary message that Jesus was trying to give. Even the message of the Shema. What is the Shema? Deuteronomy 16, 4. Hear you, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall therefore love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. Love our God more than anything in this world. And so Jesus just therefore, he just used this to continue teaching, training his disciples as he turned to them and said, I say unto you, it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom because what was Jesus trying to say? They trust in their riches to provide for them. They look to their riches instead of looking towards God. And even more so important, their hearts are tied to their riches instead of being tied to God. And that is, should I even say it this way, making wherever a man's heart is, treasure is, that's where his heart is. If a man's heart, if a man treasures his wealth, that's where his heart is with his wealth on the earth. But if a man treasures God and if a man treasures eternity, if a man treasures that future life kingdom to come, then his heart is indeed with God. So Jesus even dropped, he, he brought the point home even further. What did he say? I say unto you again, notice it is easier. He uses a parabolic example for a camel, a huge camel to go into a little bitty eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, utterly it is impossible for a man who is wealthy to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And in saying these things, it astonished the apostles. Okay. And this is the reason why. Let me make it, make you understand this. It is because according to the Pharisaic teachings of that day, the rabbinic teachings of that day, the rabbis, the Pharisees of that, of that day taught though that the, uh, God favors, God blesses those whom he favors. In other words, wealth, riches was a sign of God's favor. So if you were a man who was favored by God, God would show his favor to you by making you wealthy. So therefore, 
a man would look to gain great wealth as a sign of having God's favor. So Jesus just quelched, quelched the teachings of the Pharisees. So Jesus just said what the Pharisees call great favor from God. I am saying to you that such a man who does have great possession it's difficult for him to get in the kingdom. And that's why you see the response of the disciples. What was the response when Jesus said, how hard shall the rich enter to the kingdom? It is easier for a camel to get into the eye of a needle than him. Notice the, the disciples were very astonished at this teaching because they thought they believed and they had received the teachings of the Pharisee that wealth was a sign of divine favor. And Jesus was actually teaching them that great wealth can be a hindrance. It can be a hindrance. Why? Because it creates artificial dependence. And when I say artificial dependence, I simply mean depending upon yourself, depending upon your wealth, depending upon your social status and the connections that your wealth brings in this world and you stop depending on God to be saved, to enter into the kingdom. One must depend solely and completely on God and then view God, view that kingdom. It's like Jesus said, like a man who found a, 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 a pearl. And what did he do? He sold everything that he had. We must view the kingdom of God, the possession of God worthy of selling all that we have. But anyway, and so when that happened, Jesus, when the disciples were looking at it and saying, who then can be saved? Because they themselves now have to reorganize their thinking about wealth and blessings from God. And it's the same mess that we see today. Let me make a little side. I haven't done much preaching today, so let me do a little preaching before I end this thing. Just when I it, it, see people riding around with car tags, say for instance, or Mercedes Benz or expensive car, and they'll have on the tag, blessed. Just because you have a big house, a big car, does not mean it is a blessing from God. The very teaching of Jesus here is great wealth and resources can be a hindrance because they mess up the mindset towards God. But anyway, so the disciples were saying, who then can be saved? Jesus wanted them to know, even though there is nothing that we can do, it is impossible for men. There is nothing that we can do to fix our hearts. There's nothing that we can do to fix our inner being and fix our inner mind about greed, about wealth and about covetousness by our own sinful nature. That's just how we are. But even though there's nothing that we can do, there is still hope. Why? Because what is impossible for men to fix is not impossible for God to fix. Men, you and I cannot fix our hearts. We can't fix the covetousness and the greed that's in our heart. But there is one who can fix us from the inside. That is God. God can fix us and God can make us 
What is the, what did the rich young ruler want? God can make us qualified for the kingdom. It is not what we do. It is not what we can fix. It is only what God can fix and God who must prepare the heart. So we see in this particular section, Jesus continues to train his disciples. What did he do? He turned and looked at his disciples and began to teach them concerning that issue concerning wealth and concerning how God is the only one who is able to make one ready for the kingdom of God. And so he taught them in that instance. Okay. Now, even coming upon that, why? Because now that Jesus has given this new teaching about wealth, that's different than the teachings that the Pharisees have been given, uh, had the Pharisees gave to the people and the disciples believed the teaching of the Pharisee. Now they have this contradictory teaching by Jesus to the which they have accept. They are wondering, okay, since Jesus is talking about this new wealth thing and we once believed in this new, we once believed in wealth and Jesus saying, no, careful of wealth, then, well, what are we going to get? And that's the mindset of what happens with Peter. And that's the question that Jesus began to answer the new order of things for those who are in the kingdom. That is a new order of wealth new kind of wealth. Verse 27. Then Peter said to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then would there be for us? And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that you have followed me in the regeneration. When the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Okay. As we were simply saying, bringing it to an end, Peter, Speaking no, no doubt for the rest of the disciples as well, a little bit distraught because they were thinking that they themselves would be enriched uh, uh, because of following Jesus and thinking that they would be enriched because they would be they would be considered. Remember, the Pharisees taught those favored by God would be blessed by God with riches. So now Jesus speaking against these riches. Peter is wondering, OK, since you've changed all of this, Jesus, what then? Why? Because. You told the young, the rich young ruler to do what? To sell everything and follow you. And notice how the rich young ruler missed a wonderful chance to become a disciple of Jesus. He missed that beautiful chance. But nevertheless, what the rich young ruler missed, Peter and his fellow disciples obeyed. They abandoned everything and followed them. So Peter is saying, well, if we ain't going to get riches now in this life, what then? What then? Jesus answered his question. And now let's look at as we take apart Jesus's answer to help us to deal with today, how we need to envision our present life today, 
how we need to envision our present walk with Jesus. Let's look at the answer that Jesus gave Peter and the direction he gave him. Jesus said to Peter, I'm saying to you that those who have followed me in the regeneration when the son of man sits on this glorious throne. So what Jesus points Peter to is the blessings that we are to look forward to are not the blessings here in the now. The prosperity that we are to look forward to are not the prosperity here and now. Our mindset should be focused toward the time when Jesus sets up his kingdom. Notice what he says, regeneration when the son of man sits on his glorious throne. So we don't look for the blessings today. We don't do the Joel Osteen thing. We are not trying to live our best life now. We are not looking for God to bless us now. This is a time, our life now, we must be willing to suffer. We must, like the disciples, be willing to give up all things. It doesn't mean, and, and Jesus not saying, and neither am I, God cannot or and will not bless you financially, monetarily, or whatever with resources in this day. He will. Paul even talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, to the which I'm not going to get into right now. God will do that. Yes, he may. But our mindset, where Jesus is directing the mindset, he's pointing toward a particular time. When are we looking for our blessing in the kingdom to come? And that's the main driving point that Jesus is making and that I am trying to make here. Do not look for the blessings now. Work, labor, sacrifice now and look for the blessing in the millennial kingdom. When Jesus sets up his kingdom, that's when we'll experience all of the blessing. That's when we'll get all of the great wealth and exercise whatever authority the Lord will give us in that day. And that day only should we be concentrating on as far as the looking forward to getting those things. And now let's go back to what Jesus is saying and close up the lesson. So Jesus continues to talk to those 12 specifically, those 12 specifically saying, you will get your blessing when I set up the kingdom. And we know that kingdom is still yet to be set up. Why? Matthew chapter 12, Jesus has rescinded the kingdom for that day. He will bring in the kingdom at some future time. When that future time comes, those 12 apostles will then receive their material blessings. And a part of their material blessings will be great authority. They will sit each on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But not only will those 12 apostles be blessed in the future kingdom, but everybody who has followed after Jesus, everybody who has sacrificed for Jesus, whether they left what houses, sacrifice, relationships, brothers, sisters, mothers, or fathers. When we have following after Jesus, 
have caused disruption in the family. It made people's family break off because you followed after Jesus. These are the sacrifices that we make in this life in following after Jesus, looking forward. What did Jesus say? When you sacrifice for me in this life, whether it be relationships or even whether it be property, farms, monetary things, he says, in the life to come. Why? In the regeneration, in the kingdom of the Messiah, what we call second advent, when Jesus returns and set up his kingdom. We will receive many times as much and also inherit eternal life. So notice what he does. He lets us know, number one, our suffering and sacrifices in this life are not in vain. Number two, do not look for the payday in this life. We look for the payday in the next life and be willing to suffer relationships and even monetary setbacks, loss of income in this life, so that in the life to come, the kingdom, we will then get a manifold blessing at that particular time. And then Jesus ends with a warning and he ends with this principle where he loves to state things. The first shall be last and the last first. And in the context of what's going on here, the first here is the rich young ruler. Right now in this life, he is the first. He is the greatest. He is the chiefest. But what did he do? He failed. He was unwilling to suffer. He was unwilling to sacrifice. He was unwilling to do what Jesus told him to do. Sell everything that you own and give it to give the proceeds to the poor. Follow me. Uh, that would have guaranteed him into the eternal kingdom. He was first in this life, but because of his failure to obey Jesus, his failure in that he loved things in this present life, he loved money and resources more than he loved God in the end, in the kingdom. Well, he ain't going to be in the kingdom. He will actually be last. So, Jesus is warning his disciples. He is teaching his disciples and even us today what to value. Even though it makes us little, it gives us least in this life. We sacrifice, we lose in this life. We are last in this life. But when we do these things for the kingdom of Christ, when we do it for Jesus' sake, in the kingdom we become first. In other words, though we go through hardships in this life, for Jesus' sake, we are last in the end that will be a reversal of our fortune in the kingdom and for eternity. We will be first. And those who enjoyed the wealth of this world and the riches of this world, but did not follow after Christ, they were at one time first, but in the end, they will find themselves to be last, or in other words, a euphemism for hell itself. All right. Thanks for joining me in that particular teaching, guys. And what we want you to understand is this, the mindset of Jesus, the direction of Jesus is his face is pointed towards Jerusalem 
as he's getting ready to go there for his last time, for there he'll be condemned to death, down a cross, be resurrected from the dead. And as he's moving towards Jerusalem in his final days, he is still preparing his disciples for his upcoming death and resurrection, and he is dealing with Jerusalem one more time. All right, so thanks for joining me with that. And also, as we like to say, always remember to support the ministry. If you haven't done so, now would be a good time for you to do so. See the link in the description. Join me, partner with me on a monthly basis, or you can even do it in a one-time donation. But nevertheless, if the lessons bless you, if God leads you, touches your heart, support this ministry. But join me next time as we continue in Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem as he begins to continue teaching in parabolic form all his way, um, should I even say, on his way to the cross. See you next time.